I'm excited to be able to jump into Psalm uh, 5 with us this morning, so I'd invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 5, and then I'm going to invite Chad Anenson up to read the scriptures for us. So Psalm chapter 5, stand with us as we give attention to the reading of God's Word, as I raise this up for tall guys. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Love it. Let's pray together. Father, you are perfect. You are holy. As we gather together as your people, the people bought by the blood of your Son, just pray that you would meet us here. You would allow us to recognize how much grace has been poured out to us. I pray that as we as we look into your word, that you would allow us to, to know you, not just to, to gain more information about you, but that we would grow to know you personally. That we would encounter you in fresh and new ways. Open our eyes to see. Just pray that you would guide uh, us into the riches of your word, that you would challenge us, that you would shape us, and that you would not allow us to leave here the same. I pray that you would change us by the power of your word. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us, for your grace in our lives, and as humble, needy sinners, we ask for your grace to be poured out afresh this morning. We ask this in the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me ask you as, you, as we get started here, what is the first thing that you do every morning when you wake up? What is your morning routine? I'm not sure I want to know what you said there, Beck. <laughs> maybe, maybe for some in here, it's a, it's a shower. You got to jump in the shower and kind of uh, feel the water over you, just kind of wake you up and get you going. For others, maybe it's you grab your Bible or, or the news and you, you sit down and, and read for a time. Maybe for more ambitious folks in here, maybe you, you, you get a workout in. First thing, I'm always amazed at my amazing wife who loves running and how many times she can, she can just spring out of bed at 5.30, 6 o'clock, put on her running shoes and go for a four, four, five mile run. I don't know how she does it. It's not for me, but uh, for her, it's invigorating, and it's a, it's a way that she can start her morning. Um, 
Maybe others in here just, uh, when, they, when they hear that alarm, they hit the snooze button and roll back and try to get a few more minutes of sleep. Well, for me, my morning routine, first and foremost, involves coffee. Anybody with me? I got to have the coffee first thing, first and foremost. I have to get the coffee. I got I to gotta sit down, take in the aromas, take that first sip, allow the caffeine to kind of start flowing through the system and allow me to, to wake up a little bit and get going. I actually consider you know, myself, I, I could be a real coffee snob, but I'm, I'm so kind of dependent on coffee in the morning that I actually have to set the timer ahead of time so I don't have time to, you know, to grind the beans fresh right in the morning. So I kind of sacrifice that a little bit, but uh, got to have the coffee. And uh, I've had people ask me, well, you know, are, 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 you think you're addicted to coffee? Like, like could you go without coffee? And uh, my answer has often been, well, I don't know. I've never really tried. Like I'm pretty much for the last however long, like I, I don't know, like every morning's involved having coffee almost first thing. It's kind of what I do and, and the pattern of my life, which is pretty incredible because I'm, I'm not very consistent and, and rhythmical in a lot of areas of my life. But uh, as I reflect on this psalm and as I reflect on that aspect of my life, you know, you know what I have not done every morning for the past even month or probably even the last week? Is I have not started my day by praying, by calling out to God. And so as I, as I, as I preach this psalm, I, I preach this not as, as one who stands up here excelling in these things, and the, the charge and the, the emphasis of this psalm is not something that I embody as an example to all of us, but, but I, we come to this psalm together as, as a charge and a challenge for us to recognize the importance of what is being said here, what is being laid out to us. And I don't think that the central thrust of the psalm is necessarily that we have to pray before we do anything else every morning, although that may be a worthwhile pursuit. But, but I believe that the thrust of this psalm is ultimately this, that in this we are reminded that because we are under the covenant love of God, we can be assured that He listens to our cry to Him. And if we believe that, if we believe that God hears us, then how can prayer not be our first pursuit? The thing that we turn to first and foremost, regularly and consistently in our lives. This is a very interesting psalm. It kind of has a lot of different aspects to it. It's been hard to kind of categorize it. But uh, it starts with somewhat of a lament and then shifts to some pretty strong language, even gives it an imprecatory prayer and then concludes with a declaration of, of, of confidence. The psalm is attributed to David. We're uncertain of the circumstances that surrounded his writing of this psalm and when that was. But in this psalm, David kind of presents five different stanzas for us. And these five stanzas kind of flow where the, the, the first few verses kind of mirror the last few verses, and then the second stanza and the fourth stanza have kind of parallel patterns with kind of a central stanza in the middle that was really kind of the emphasis of the psalm, where we find kind of the, the key moment for us. And so I just want to kind of quickly walk through these five stanzas and hopefully glean from it what God has for us. Challenge for us to understand how we can approach God in prayer. And so in the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, we see this desperate cry for help. 
It begins with a desperate cry to the one that he knows can help him. When you are in trouble, when you face difficulty, who do you call? Who do you turn to? Well, in our lives, we, we know that we usually will turn to some kind of specialist. If your uh, sewage is clogged, you're going to call a plumber. If your car breaks down, you're going to call a mechanic. For David, he goes to the one that he knows can help him in all areas of life. God is the, the source of, and, and the strength that he needs to be helped. And so he cries out and he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. There's this deep, emotional, visceral plea. He calls out to God and he says, Give attention to the sound of my cry. As if he's saying, Hey God, are, are you listening to me? Please pay attention. I, I need you to hear me right now. I am actually very good at tuning out noise and, and things going on around me. Which actually comes in handy sometimes whenever you live in a house with four boys. But it also doesn't come in handy when you also live with a wife that also lives with four boys and is sometimes trying to get your attention. And so more than once, my wife has been, you know, maybe frustrated by my inattentiveness while I'm watching a sporting event or enthralled in something else and chaos is breaking out and I am completely unaware. But God is not like a distracted husband, but He is an attentive Father. He knows and He sees and He understands. And David calls out and says, God, consider my groaning, what I'm going through, the struggle of my life. And notice whom He addresses in this cry. He says, he says give ear to my words, O Lord. Daniel reminded us of this in, in Psalm 3 a few weeks ago. This is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is a personal name. He then says, give attention my King and my God. He knows the one to whom He is praying. When you pray, to whom do you pray? What is your view of, of the God to whom you cast out your request? Is it just some general deity out there? This kind of powerful force that you hope can maybe step in and, and help you out a little bit? Or is it one with whom you have a personal relationship that you know intimately? For David, this is his king. And we don't know when he wrote this, but ultimately we know that David was a king. Understood what it meant to be a king. For us, kingship is kind of lost on us at times. But to be a king means that that, that what you command happens. It's the idea of absolute authority. And for one who is a king, he knows who his ultimate king is, the one who controls everything in his life. And David calls out to his king, to his God, the one whom he worship it, worships, the one that he knows is, is powerful and beyond him. And you see, who you view God to be determines the expectations that you have when you come to Him in prayer. You believe that He hears you and that He can actually help you. For David, he has an intimate relationship with God that culminates in this declaration that he says, in the morning when I get up, you hear my voice. He has assurance that God is listening, that He hears Him, that He understands where He's coming from. He says, I lay out my request to you in the morning and I watch. In, uh, if you have the ESV translation before you, it, it says, 
that I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, a little bit difference on the translation there because the, the, the verb that's used there in the original is, is, means ultimately to set forth or to arrange and it doesn't actually have an object specified. And so translators have tried to understand, you know, what is, what is he saying that he sets forth? Is it his request? Is it a sacrifice? And so I think it's the same thing that he's calling out to God. And in the morning, he comes to God, he sets out his request to God, and then he says that he watches or he waits expectantly. What if we begin our day with that simple pattern? To pray and to watch. To cry out to God and then wait on him to act. Wait on him to show up. This is how, how David comes to God in this desperate cry for help. The psalm then takes a, a pretty shi- uh, quick shift, uh, uh, maybe a surprising uh, shift for, for some as you read it into the next verses, verses 4 to 6, where we see this denouncement of evil, a denouncement of evil. But here, David tells us why he can wait on God even in the midst of turmoil. He says, I can, I can pray to you in the morning and I can wait on you because of this. And he goes on to show and declare not so much what God has done, but really who God is. He begins to declare these truths about God and his, his relationship to, to, to the righteous and the, the unrighteous. And so the rest of his prayer is the declaration of assurance that grounds his patience on God. He says, in the morning... I pray to you and I watch for or because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Maybe not what you were expecting him to say. He goes on to continue and continues and says, God, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you. David begins to declare how God is intolerant of evil. He will not allow it in his house. Evil is an unwelcomed guest in God's presence. And David begins to ramp up the language even more. And he says, you hate all evildoers. He says, you destroy liars. God abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful ones. This is some strong language that David implements. We oftentimes don't put these words into, you know, upbeat worship songs, do we? But what do we make of these kind of statements when we encounter them in Scripture? Does God hate evildoers? Does God hate sinners? What about the oft kind of quoted phrase that maybe you've heard where, you know, hey, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Is that a helpful way to to think about this? I think that there's a sense in which that sentiment is true, but I think there's a sense in which it is deeply flawed. And I think where we can get off track with that, where we, we kind of need to, to, to hold true to what Scripture says, is that we have to realize that we are not just good people who perform evil actions at times. That's kind of the humanistic view on humanity, right? That, uh, you know, we're mostly good folks who perform evil actions occasionally. We make mistakes. We're kind of the product of all these forces outside of ourselves, and, and you know, it kind of results in us acting in a, in a way that, that, that may not be best. But, but ultimately, mostly, you know, we're, we're, we're good people. 
But the Bible actually teaches us that humanity is totally depraved. We see this declared and defended in, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, where he says that, that we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We have to realize that, that, that we sin because we are sinners. We naturally have a heart that is set against God. It is completely broken. We are corrupt to our core. And as such, we are condemned as sinners before a holy God. We are His enemies. Those under His just wrath and His righteous hatred of evil. God cannot tolerate evil. And yet at the same time, as we read in Scripture, we encounter the words of the Apostle John that declares that God loved the world. That God is love. In the Old Testament, we saw in Exodus, God declared His name and, and, and who He was. He's a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. In Romans 5, just a, a couple chapters later, in, in Romans what does he declare? He says that God shows his love for us while we were sinners. So it is true that God does love sinners. So how do we reconcile these seemingly kind of contradictory truths in Scripture? We don't have time to go too deeply into it. I would commend to you a simple little book by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. In there, he actually unpacks kind of five different ways in which God's love is described. And he, and he calls us that we can't absolutize any one of those kind of ways in which God's love is, is declared. We have to hold those all together. And we can't take kind of a modern notion of, of love and what we believe that means and then apply it and, and, and put that back on God. But we have to understand how God's love is nuanced and specified throughout all of Scripture. We have to recognize that, that, that for us, we, we may not be able to hold this idea of, of, of love and hatred in the same way that God does. We have to recognize that, that God can at the same time declare His unmovable stance against evil and thus His hatred for sinners and also declare His unfailing love for those who would turn in repentance toward Him. And as we begin to wrestle with why does David highlight this? We're going to see that for the psalmist, for him, he soon sees that God's hatred of evil is actually a comfort for him. It actually becomes a comfort. It's good news that God will not tolerate evil. It takes us to the third stanza in verses 7-8 to eight where we see this contrast. We see the destiny of the righteous. The destiny of the righteous. This contrast between the psalmist and the evil ones that, that, that he's speaking of. He says, the wicked cannot dwell before you, God. But then he goes and he says, but I will enter your house. So what allows David to come before God? 
How does He get to come before God if we know that, 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 that all are under sin? So what does He say? I think it's important to highlight what He does not say. He does not say, because of my moral perfection, I can come into God's house. He does not say that because his, his good works outweigh his bad works, he can enter into God's presence. He does not say that because he's mostly a good person, kind of like a puppy dog that, you know, sure, he chews on the furniture, but he's just so cute that, of course, you have to accept him and love him. He doesn't say because I don't sleep around or because I don't, you know, go out and steal and, and break in. I don't, you know, I'm not addicted to substances. He doesn't say any of that is the grounds for him to come before God. What does he say? And this, I think, is so crucial for us to understand. He declares that I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. It is only the covenant love of God that forms the basis for evildoers to stand before a holy God. And it is only the covenant love of God that is declared and expressed in the historical reality of the coming of Jesus who died on that cross for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved on Himself, and therefore His whole perfect righteousness could be credited to us it's only because of God's love extended to sinners like us through Christ that we have any grounds to come before God. The Christians are often accused of being kind of judgmental, thinking that we're just like morally better than everyone else. And sometimes we can be like that, right? Christians have been known to do that. Jesus actually had a parable for people like that in Luke 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is what he told them. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other tax collector. And the Pharisee stood there by himself and he prayed like this. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But in contrast, the tax collector, standing far off, says, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat upon his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. There, there are times uh, in my life, if I'm honest, that I kind of wish that I had a more dramatic conversion story, right? Like, like, I don't have this amazing testimony of God's grace just pulling me out of, out of the depths of, of, of darkness in different ways. I, I grew up in a faithful Christian home. Faithful parents taught me the gospel at a young age. Went to the gathering of the church weekly. Was involved in Awanas where I probably first made a profession of faith. I went to a Christian school, went to a Bible college, pursued ministry. Um, mine was not a story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In fact, my parents wouldn't even let us listen to rock and roll. It was, for all intents, a very religious kind of upbringing. 
which sometimes can kind of feel like it wasn't all that special. Didn't take a whole lot for God to save me. It was kind of easy for him. But the more that I have grown to just understand the depths of human depravity, the darkness of my own heart, and then ultimately that against the backdrop of the absolute holiness and perfection of God, I have become to realize more and more and more that God's love extended to me and what it costs to save someone like me is no less amazing and absolutely no less necessary than what it takes for God to rescue someone from the depths of addiction and whatever dark action you can imagine. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. None of us can stand before God on anything that we have done, but only by the covenant love and faithfulness of God. And the same love that extended to a church kid like me that rescued me is the same love that can rescue you from whatever darkness you find that engulfs your life. And if you struggle to believe that God can save you because of what you've done, that He, can, that he can't forgive you because of the life you've lived, then you don't understand the covenant love of God that reaches beyond anything that we have done and calls sinners to repentance. And David declares that he will enter God's house based on his covenant love. And that leads him to say that, that he will bow down before God's holy temple in the fear of God. He, he approaches God with a holy fear because someone who knows that they have been so miraculously saved can have nothing but a posture of humility before God. And he leaves then, this stanza concludes with this request, really the central request of the psalm, where he says this, he says, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. He says, God, make your way straight before me. In this request, there is a cry for God to hold him steady, to keep him on track, because he may not be able to bear up under the pressure of the enemies around him. He may be even drawn away by them, so he calls to God, the holy God who has accepted him, and says, says, says lead me in righteousness. Make your way straight before me, God. The psalm then shifts again to kind of some harsh language in this fourth stanza, verses 9 to 10, where there is a demand for justice and judgment. He presents again the grounds for his plea, tells us why he desires to have this straight path before him. He basically in verse 8 is saying, keep me faithful because I know that the way of the wicked is destruction. It is empty. And so he continues to declare He's saying there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. These are words picked up by the Apostle in Romans 3 to describe the fallenness of humanity. And then he ratchets it up a little more and the psalmist offers this imprecatory prayer. 
It's the first time we've seen this, but it's a common occurrence in the Psalms. An imprecatory prayer is basically a call to invoke judgment or punishment or a curse on someone. We don't feel too comfortable with that, do we? Some heavy stuff that we read here. What does he say? He says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their counsel. Because of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Oh, is this how we're supposed to pray? I'm sure we all have a few people in mind right now who we'd like to pray this over, right? But when we encounter these imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, how, how should we think about them? There's some things we need to keep in mind. First of all, these prayers are not just out of mere vengeance. This is not simply a call for a personal vendetta. We're not to pray judgment on people out of spite or because we have just been offended by someone. We have to carefully recognize who has been wronged and who is called to execute justice. The reason that the psalmist calls for justice against them is because they have rebelled against God. God is the one who declares them guilty and they're cast out because of their transgressions, their sins against God. And prayers like this can, can only be given insofar as they call for God to act in line with His perfect character. You see, for, for David, this is a good prayer because he knows that if God abides evil, if He endures or just puts up with evil, that He is not good. We might kind of overlook it or you know, because we're flawed, because we're evil ourselves. But a prayer for God to judge evil is a prayer for God to uphold His righteousness. But it begs the question, how do we hold intention God's righteous justice and, and the demand to, to, to execute rebels alongside of God's long-suffering mercy that calls sinners to repent and be saved? How do we hold those things together? And I think that, that, that prayers like this are less a call for an immediate act of judgment as if, as if David's calling for, for fire to come out of the sky and just wipe away his enemies. It's less a call for immediate judgment on all non-believers. And I think this is more of a cry of confidence that God's holiness must be upheld. And that, it, that it, is, it is assured that the wicked who stand against God, who live according to their own design, will be destroyed. And only those who rest under God's covenant faithfulness will be saved. It's the culmination of Psalm chapter 1. That the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The words of Psalm 34 quoted by Peter. That the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In many ways, David is reminding himself in this imprecatory prayer that God's justice must be upheld, and that is because of God's goodness. So we don't make ourselves gods and condemn others and just pronounce judgment on everybody that we see as if we're better than them, no. But we do beseech the King in His holiness to act according to His just nature. The psalm then shifts to the fifth and final stanza where there is a declaration of worship. 
Where he says in contrast to those who will ultimately be cast out from God's presence, he says, but let all who take refuge, all who have run to You, Father, let them rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. God, spread Your protection over them. It's as if the, the power that allows God to wipe out rebels becomes for us the power that protects us under His care. It says, let those who love Your name exult in You. Live in awe and wonder that such a holy God who is so against the evil of the world would reach out in love to save and protect ones like us. That's a reason to rejoice. And he declares that you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So do you believe that God is for you? That His favor is actually upon you regardless of, of what the circumstances of life that you are enduring, that you're walking through. Do you believe that He is for you? That His covenant faithfulness stands over you? And if you fail to believe that, if you struggle to know that, then we look again and again to the cross. We look to the cross that declares that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest declaration of His love and His favor towards sinners is seen on the cross. And for David, this culminates in this declaration of worship. How can he not rejoice? How can he not live in absolute peace because he is under the protection of God? You know, as I studied this psalm this week, as I, I read it over and over again, it, it kind of bothered me that I didn't know what David's specific circumstances were. I wanted to know what, what was going on, what was happening that, that, that caused him this, 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 to be in this place. Because he doesn't really specify it at all. But I began to see more and more that, that the importance is not how he dealt with his specific circumstances. But, it, but it's really his, his heart's cry that, that, that grounds him in this moment. And as I began to try to just wrestle with, how, how would I summarize what David's plea is in this psalm? I think as I, as I was talking with Chad Barlow this week, he kind of helped me get to this point where I think in summer he's basically saying in this prayer, he's saying, God, help me believe the sermon that I'm preaching to myself. Saying, help me believe these, these truths that I am declaring to you. Let me, let me know that this is true. And he's ultimately saying, God, don't let me follow this path of those around me. Don't let me be discouraged by the evil that I see everywhere. Don't let me believe the lie that they will be okay. Let me know that it is a path of ruin. So hold me true to, to be faithful under your love and under your protection on the path that you have called me to. Isn't that true that in prayer so often we are asking God to help us believe what we know to be true? And what if we began our day with a prayer like this? Before we do anything else, 
Maybe you find yourself in this cultural moment just discouraged by what feels like the, the overwhelming moral decline of our society. It's just discouraging. Where the evil distortions of, of God's good design are, are all around us. Where sin is, is more and more openly celebrated. Maybe you find yourself asking, what's going on and, and how have we arrived here? What is this world that my kids are growing up in? How can I protect them from this? Maybe it just seems like evil is winning all around us. Maybe you just wonder how you can stay faithful when it seems like everything's headed in an opposite direction. And you struggle to believe that that's, that that's the wrong path. In times like all of these, we need prayers like this to every day cry out to the God who hears us, who knows what we are going through, who sees it. None of it has escaped His, his gaze. And He will act in line with His character. So as you think about your week, maybe even today the challenges and the stresses of the week are just starting to build up. And you dread the drive into work tomorrow. Before you, wait, before you get out of bed, as you wake up, before you do anything to else, will you cry out to God? Will you ask Him to help you believe? To believe that His love and protection are over you. That His justice will prevail in the end. The evil will not win. And that the way of faithfulness, the, the, the path that you have been striving to hold to, is the way to flourishing and the path to joy. Will you call on Him to help you believe that tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that? Will you this week offer your prayer to God as David did in the morning? Offer your prayer to God and watch. And watch what God will do. Wait for God. Will you believe and, and, and fight to believe that His justice still stands? But that His love has been extended to sinners such as us. And because we are under His covenant love, we can be assured that He hears us when we cry in our moment of desperation. So this week, every day, let's offer our prayer to God and let's watch expectantly, waiting for Him to act. Let's pray together. Father, we love Your Word. Thankful for how this has worked over in my life this week. It's been a challenge and a conviction. As we sung earlier, God, we are all prone to wander. We feel it. We feel it in our bones. So God, we ask that You would take our hearts, the hearts that You have loved, that You have shown Your favor towards. Pray that You would seal us, that You would, you would hold us fast amidst everything that we see around us. Let us hold true to the path of righteousness, not because of what we have done, but because You have rescued us from the depths of our depravity and brought us into Your house. Let us believe that this is the path to joy. This is the path to flourishing. God, hear us when we cry. Let us wait patiently on You. 
And let us be those who recognize how much you have done to reach down and rescue us. So let us live in light of that reality and be your church in this world today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.